lot of our life is lived these days on screens. It's lived in the two dimensions of height and width, right? A lot of us go to a lot of Zoom meetings where we are one two-dimensional square among many other two-dimensional squares. Uh, we FaceTime with friends on our phones. Uh, we post on Instagram. We text a lot. Some of you might be texting right now. Who knows? Uh, and I know my email inbox is always, always full. And during this pandemic, we've had to, right? I mean, for a while, all of us had to remain physically distanced. And now some people still, uh, for various reasons, have to keep physical distance. And so we've been grateful for this ability to stay connected. Uh, I think back 100 years, I can't imagine what it must have been like in the pandemic of 1918. So technology has, has created opportunities, right? Medically fragile people, parents with kids who can't yet be vaccinated, people who just can't come on a Sunday morning anymore can join us. And we're really happy that you could uh, be part of our worship service this morning, those of you on Zoom and those of you on Facebook. Uh, and beyond Sunday mornings, right? Uh, weddings, now family members can be far away and still join in the joy of a wedding day. Uh, we've had some memorial services during the pandemic. And it's meant that family members on other continents could join and, and share and help bear the grief of that moment and also share in the gratitude as we remember the lives of people uh, who have loved us and who we have now lost. So technology creates opportunities. Uh, it creates freedoms, right? People can travel. Pe people can be working remotely. People can be away and still join us. I remember a few, uh, well, maybe it's been a couple months ago now, we had a group of volunteers who were headed down to uh, Paradise, California to be part of a Mennonite disaster project there, rebuilding some homes that were lost in fires. And on Sunday morning, they joined us from a, from a phone in their van as they were driving down I-5, which I thought was the coolest thing in the world. So there are advantages, um, but there are also disadvantages, aren't there? There are costs, uh, there are losses, there are dangers because we are not two-dimensional beings. We are not avatars. We are not screen icons. We are embodied people with height and width uh, and depth. And frankly, during this pandemic, some of us added a little more in that third dimension. And we live in three-dimensional spaces. The thing about Zoom is you, you can curate your background, right? You can let people see whatever you want them to see of your life. But right off camera is all the rest of the dimensions that make us who we are. We're multidimensional people. And... We need other multidimensional people in our lives. We are essentially relational, right? And that's been true from the very beginning. In the creation story, in the book of Genesis, God creates Adam from Adama, which is the Hebrew word for earth. And immediately God says, it is not good for Adam that Adam should be alone. I'll make him a partner. It is not good to be alone. We need other people in our lives. We need other people in our lives to help us know who we are. We need other people in our lives to help us know that we are loved, to help us learn how to share, to experience forgiveness, to fully sort of apprehend the goodness of God's creation. Frederick Buechner, who's a very wise uh, spiritual writer, I put it this way. You can survive on your own. You can grow strong on your own. You can prevail on your own, but you cannot be human on your own. We're multidimensional people, and we need other multidimensional people in our lives. There's something missing when we only ever relate in two dimensions, but there is some alchemy that happens when, when three-dimensional bodies 
are in the same place at the same time. It is different. And I can't really explain it, but, but it can even be sacred. Remember Jesus who said, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I will be there with you. So this pandemic has amplified the reality that much of our life as three-dimensional people is now being lived in two dimensions. And when this pandemic is over, if this pandemic is over, whenever this pandemic is over, I doubt that we're gonna go back to the way it used to be. And even if we wanted to, I doubt that we could go back to the way it used to be. So then the question is, what will be the new normal? What should be? What could be? What ought to be? What do we hope will be the new normal? Well, today, uh, in the midst of this series on the new normal, I wanna suggest that density has to be one of the lens, lenses through which we look at our lives. That density has to be one of the ways that we think and rethink how we live, and particularly how we live together as followers of Jesus. Later, we'll talk about, about reverence, and uh, a little bit later, in fact, it might be after the new year, we'll talk about equity as a third lens for viewing our lives. But today, we want to start with density, and that's a word that Kurt introduced in a sermon uh, a while back. I kind of lost track of time. It comes from an essay written by a theologian named David Fitch. See, the thing is, before the pandemic, churches measured things like attendance and giving to sort of monitor the health of, of a congregation, right? And if you have more people in the pews, if you have more money in the offering, that, that must be a healthy congregation, right? Now, though, it is getting a lot harder to track things like attendance. Now, to be clear, we still track the money that comes in in the offering very carefully because we want to be very accountable for all that people give to support the ministries we've identified as being important. So if you ever have any questions about giving or funding or the budget, ask our treasurer, Linda Winning, ask Rachel Joy. We, we could tell you down to the nickel. But attendance, that's a little harder to count. I mean, how many are part of this worship service this morning? And I, we could count the number of people here. You probably are being counted actually right now. But on Zoom, I mean, we know how many people, how many devices join, but is that one person? Is that family of four? A lot of people turn off the camera on the Zoom screen. Uh, Facebook, even harder. There are people who watch later, but or devices at least to join later. We can we can be, we can figure out how many devices join, but we don't know how long people watch. Maybe they just watch a couple minutes. Maybe they just skip ahead to the sermon. Maybe they skip the sermon. Who knows? This all, I can tell you, makes pastors nervous. Like, are people there? Where have they gone? And more importantly, are they going to come back? The thing is, though, attendance and giving never were very accurate measures for the health of a congregation. Because the goal of a church isn't just to get a bunch of people in one place at one time. If that was the case, we've just gotten to hire some really good studio musicians we get more camera-friendly pastors, and we put on a really good show. I'm pretty sure I could fill this space three times a Sunday, packed to the rafters. But that's not really the goal of the church. Nor is the goal just to collect a bunch of money and make sure we have a healthy bank account. The goal of the church is strong and thick, life-giving, dense relationships. The goal is density in our life with Christ and in our life together and in our life with our neighbors, and in our life in God's good creation. And this reading today from Ephesians is about that kind of dense, thick, strong 
community, that, that tree that Kurt showed just a few minutes ago. Now, in this reading, Paul is really candid about the reality that a lot of the connections in our lives can actually set us at odds with each other. We know that in our personal lives, and some of those connections are kind of trivial. I mean, it depends on the college you went to or the sports team you happen to root for. Uh, I went to Cal and I root for the Giants, and this weekend was kind of rough for us on both counts. But some of those connections run much deeper. They're much more personal. A lot of people are at odds with their own family members these days, depending on which political party they belong to, or which cable news channel they happen to watch. So the connections in our lives can set us at odds with each other. Uh, and that was true for Paul. Paul was very Jewish. And in his, in his own very recent past, he was also very anti-Gentile. And when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, that was still a very live conflict. Paul was also a citizen of the Roman Empire. And uh, Romans were very protective and proud of their identity. To a Roman citizen, everyone else, didn't matter where they came from, what culture they were part of, everyone else was simply a barbarian. Paul is very aware of the reality that competing connections in our lives can set us at odds with others. But he's even more aware of a, what he knows to be a deeper reality, of a new community of the beloved community that Jesus is making possible. And so in this reading today, Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, for he is our peace. He has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. Paul has experienced reconciliation in his own life. And this reading is also very clear that it begins with Jesus. He is our peace. It's critical to recognize the way that Jesus affects the reconciliation that Paul has experienced, because that's what will keep this new community from becoming like all of the other conflicting communities in our lives. So listen again, in verse 13, he writes, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 14, in his flesh, he's made both groups into one. In verse 16, he has reconciled both groups to God in one body through the cross. So into this world of hostility, Jesus comes living a life of self-giving love. In the Gospels, Jesus refuses not to love. In the Gospel stories, Jesus loves tax, tax collectors and fishermen and prostitutes and people with communicable diseases. He loves people who are hungry. He loves people who have failed badly. And even at the end, when the powers that be, the religious powers, the political powers that have had just enough of him and are ready to crucify him, even at the end, he loved the ones who were killing him. Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they're doing. Jesus couldn't do anything other than love because God is love. And because it's that kind of love that makes the new community, this beloved community, possible. It's that kind of self-giving love that was in Christ Jesus that has the capacity to break down the dividing walls that separate us. It's that kind of self-giving love that has the capacity to break the cycles of hostility and enmity. It's that kind of love that has the capacity to welcome everyone into a life together with God. Friend, stranger, enemy. God means to include everyone in this beloved community. So Paul's clear that it begins with Christ. It begins with a commitment to live like Jesus. It begins with a commitment to live out the self-giving love of Jesus. His love has to be at the center or else we'll always devolve back into competing connections and conflicting communities. 
One of the most insightful things that I, I've ever read on the nature of true community was written by uh, Martin Buber, who was a Jewish philosopher. He wrote, true community does not come into being because people have feelings for each other, though that also is required, but rather on two accounts. All of them have to stand in a living reciprocal relationship to a single living center, and they have to stand in a living reciprocal relationship to one another. And the second has its source in the first. A community is built upon a living reciprocal relationship, but the builder is the living active center. True community, the beloved community, begins at the center. Jesus is the center of our faith. And when we're in a living relationship with Christ, we find the capacity to love one another in the way that Christ has loved us all. We find the capacity for strong, thick, life-giving, dense relationships. That's the promise. That's the hope. That's the good news of our faith. And so density has to be one of the lenses for looking at our lives, for discerning what this new normal is going to be in front of us. But how does density help us rethink our life together as followers of Jesus? So I want to talk about a couple of ways this morning in particular. Several years ago, uh, when, when this congregation was, was, was growing, we were counting attendance pretty close. And it was growing. That was a good thing. Uh, we were shifting from being a small congregation to being a medium-sized congregation. And we were starting to realize that we were no longer functioning like a single-cell organism. In a smaller church, and this is true of any community, but in a smaller church particularly, whether it's 50 or 150 or even 170 people, um, everyone can know everyone. Everyone can know pretty much everything, and everyone goes to everything. Back in those days, if there was a Christmas program put on by the kids, everyone went. If there was a choir visiting, most people were there. But when you grow a little, come 200 people, 300 people, 400 people, it's just not possible anymore. And even now, it's hard to know everyone in this congregation. It's hard for everyone to know everything. It's hard for me to know everything that goes on in this church. And nobody can go to everything anymore. I missed the blessing of the animals yesterday. It was a wonderful service, but, but I missed it, right? So we recognized that we weren't functioning as a single-cell organism anymore. Instead, we were functioning more like a network of relationships. And I still remember sitting in a meeting. Uh, Brett Thiessen, some of you remember Brett. He was our congregational administrator at the time. And Brett all of a sudden said, its church is like a dendritic network. And we all looked at each other because none of us knew what a dendritic network was, but I've learned a little bit since then. Dendritic networks are part of our nervous uh, systems in our bodies. They're a network of, of connections that branch out. They look actually a little bit like uh, that tree, that uh, wire tree that Kurt held up earlier. And I'm not a biologist, so forgive me if I don't get all this right, but it's the metaphor that I'm interested in mostly this morning. And what's interesting about dendritic networks as a metaphor for the church is the connections in those networks grow stronger with use. And the stronger the connections are, the denser the network is, the healthier the body is. So I think that's a terrific way to think about the church as a network of dense relationships because it moves us beyond counting attendance on Sunday or counting the offering of signs of health. But it also accounts for the reality that part of our life is gonna be lived together online. Part of our life is gonna be lived in two dimensions, because there, there are people who just can't come to church on Sundays, and I think that's going to be true even after the pandemic, and uh, there's some meetings that are just going to happen on Zoom because it doesn't make sense to drive an hour across Portland to go to a meeting for an hour and drive home an hour, right? But there are still ways 
to increase the density of our relationships, our relationship to Christ, our relationship to each other, our relationship with our neighbors. And that moves us toward this vision of the beloved community. So I want you to think about the ways that you're connected to PMC, the people you're connected to, the ways that you're connected. Who do you know? What are your points of contact? Who have you volunteered or worked alongside? Of? How are you part of the network of relationships here at Portland Mennonite Church? And if density is a way for looking at our life together, it then poses some good questions, some questions for each of us. I mean, in this network that holds us as followers of Jesus, are there connections that are missing? And as we transition through this pandemic into a new normal, are there ways to strengthen those connections in your life? But it also poses some questions for us as a church. How can we create spaces uh, for deeper, thicker relationships? How can we deepen uh, our, our living reciprocal relationship to Jesus, who's the living, active center of our faith? There's one other question, too, and that is worship is, is, is um, most at the center of our life as a congregation. So how does technology impact the density of our worship? And that's the second thing I want to talk about is, is technology. Because on, on the one hand, technology is what has flattened our lives into two dimensions. On the other hand, it's made uh, new ways of connecting possible. So how do we view technology, and, and particularly the use of technology in a congregation, through this lens of density? So I read a couple of uh, really thought-provoking articles recently. The first one highlighted uh, the work of, a, of, of an author, Sherry Turkle, who wrote a book, Alone Together. And one of the things that she introduces in this article is, um, is the observation that with technology, it, it moves from being better than nothing to better than anything. So think about texting. I mean, some of you might be too young for this, but I still remember when texting technology became available, I couldn't figure it out. Like it's on my phone, but I have a phone. So I tell my daughters like, why don't I just call this person? Why do you want me to type into my phone? And back then, remember the, the, the keypads on, on, on phone? It was like, I can't even find the X here. What, what am I looking for here? I didn't really get it, but think about it. When it first came out, you're stuck in a meeting that's running long. You're going to be home late. You know what I mean? I can't call, you can't call your partner, right? You can't call your spouse. You can't call them to tell them you're going to be late. But at least I could text them. It's better than nothing. Now, a year later, you're in a meeting again. It's running long. You're going to be late. You get out of that meeting. You can call home. I don't really want to call home now because I don't want to explain why I'm late. I don't want to get into that conversation. I know this is not going to be good news. Plus, I really want to go to Powell's and pick up a book I've been waiting on before I get there anyway. I don't want to have to explain that either. So I'm going to text. Now texting is better than anything. That's the shift with technology. It's the same with, it's the same with Zoom. It's the same with streaming, right? March 2020, I, I remember we were in a table meeting. All of a sudden we realized, yeah, we can't have church on Sunday. We have to cancel the service. What are we going to do? Let, let's try Zoom, all right? We'll see if we can get people online on Zoom. It'll be better than nothing, okay? 20 months later, some of us are thinking, Zoom, it might be better than anything. I get to sleep in. I don't have to change out of my pajamas. 
I can make a cup of coffee. It moves. That's how technology works. That's how technology becomes normalized. And so it's important that we think critically, that we think intentionally as we settle into this new normal. Well, there's a second article I read uh, that was quite interesting. It's actually the manuscript from a podcast because uh, that's a technology I've never really wanted to normalize. I don't listen to podcasts, but I like to read the manuscripts, which I have to admit I print out. <laughs> I'm kind of old school that way. Um, but this was, a, this was a podcast of uh, Ezra Klein, who's uh, uh, with the New York Times, interviewing L.M., and I think it's pronounced Sikasis, because I didn't listen to the podcast, so I don't know how his name's pronounced. But in this, in this interview, Sikasis um, makes the point that when we pick up a tool or when we adopt a technology, we tend to ask, what can I do with this? So if you pick up a hammer, yes, what can I do with this? Well, you can frame a wall, you can build a birdhouse, you can tap a nail in so you can hang a picture in your bedroom. What can I do with this? But the thing about a hammer is, we all know this saying, if you have a hammer, pretty soon everything looks like a nail. And so what Sikasis says is, it's important to ask not only, what can I do with this, but what will this do to me? And that's an important question for us to ask as a congregation too. Not only what can we do with technology, but what will technology do to us? Whether it's streaming or Zoom or, or uh, social media or whatever it might be. And so in this interview, um, LMC cases, uh, there, were, there were a series of questions that were posed. He actually has 41 questions to ask about technology. Um, they didn't ask all of them in the interview. And in December, our, uh, our Justice Committee, our Climate Justice Committee is gonna host a, a class for three weeks, 9.30 to 10.30, where we're gonna ask some of these questions and have a chance to discern and talk about them together. That'll be on, it will be online. So you can join either in person or online. That'll come up in December. But I wanna ask, or at least pose four of these questions today as a way of starting this conversation, all right? The first question that Sikasis points is, uh, that uh, poses is, what sort of person Will the use of this technology make of me? Think about things like Twitter or Facebook. How has that changed us? So what sort of person will the use of this technology make of me? The second question that he poses is, what habits will the use of this technology instill? What habits will it instill by using? Third question, how will the use of this technology affect how I relate to other people. Don't think technology has a capacity to impact us. Read the comment sections on articles in your going, my goodness. And then the fourth question that I'll pose today just to get us started is, how will the use of this technology, oh, no, no, excuse me. What will the use of this technology encourage me to ignore? Well, he has 41 questions. Those are four to start with. But it seems to me there are all ways of asking, will technology enhance or diminish the density of our relationships? I've been a pastor for a long time now. I preach a lot of sermons. I, I try not to be preachy, which is a little bit of a fine line between preaching and being preachy. I feel like I need to be a little bit preachy, though because we are really at a critical inflection point. This pandemic has disrupted 
normal. It's disrupted habits. It's disrupted patterns. And this pandemic has flattened our lives. Our lives are much more two-dimensional now than they used to be. A new normal is going to emerge. If we're not thoughtful, if we're not intentional, if we're not critical, we'll just be shaped by the prevailing pressures and we'll settle into whatever's conventional, whatever's convenient. But the gospel holds this other vision of a beloved community, of a community of living reciprocal relationships, of dense, thick, life-giving relationships, a community that, that's made possible by Jesus, the living, active center of our faith. So it's going to be critical for each of us, for all of us as a congregation, to think about our habits and our practices and our connections and our commitments, to think about the density of our life together. So that what the psalmist wrote will be true of us, how good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Maybe so. Amen.